Talo for Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susanna Suiswiki. Coming up, bad weather dampens travel plans for Tuvalu's MPs. Also, what we are calling for is really more harsher penalties for perpetrators. There's been little improvement to reduce violence against children in Fiji. And later on, we find out how one social enterprise in Aotearoa is closing the gender pay gap. Bad weather after last week's election in Tuvalu has delayed travel to the capital for Outer Island MPs ahead of a prime ministerial election. Senior Electoral Officer Semi Malaki says official results released on Saturday saw 10 MPs return from the last parliament along with six newcomers. Malaki says ships are due to depart Funafuti this morning to collect MPs from other islands were not able to leave because of stormy weather. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with Semi Malaki and began by asking him how last week's election went. Uh, the election um, last week on Friday, uh, we opened the polling station for polling at 8 as the, and then we completed all the polling at 4 in the afternoon. And soon after that, uh, we continued with the, the counting. And uh, once we finished with one island constituency, we published those results on the on the radio. And uh, the last island to be counted finished around or oh, almost uh, after 1 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. Actually, there were 10 MPs re-elected, and there's only six, yeah, six new candidates. Just coming to the next steps now, um, what happens now in terms of um, the election of the Prime Minister and formation of government? The election and appointment of the Prime Minister is uh, in the Constitution under Schedule 2. to set out the detailed procedure for the election and appointment of the Prime Minister, which normally the Governor-General, as the representative of the Head of State, issues notice to the members of parliament, informing them of the date, time and place of the meeting for the election of the prime minister, as well as the deadline for submitting nominations. Right. And as it stands right now, MPs are still in their constituencies. Is that is that correct? Yes. I think once they are all here, and then the, the governor-general will issue the notice. And what does it involve getting them to uh, Funafuti? What, what needs to happen for that? to bring them back? Oh, we have uh, the, the fleet of vessels here in Tuvalu that will, the, the Department of Marine has been scheduled to sail to the outer islands to pick up the elected members of parliament and bring them to the main island. That, um, hopefully by the end of uh, this week, they will be all um, been brought back from the outer islands. But we are trying to make sure that they'll be here um, this week. What were some of the election issues that you saw people talking about or that, that people were thinking about in, in, in and during the election for Tuvaluans in Tuvalu? Yeah, I think the ma- ma- major uh, challenge that we faced the, um, during the, uh, pol- the polling day and uh, prior to polling, they, if the, the general public they don't understand the electoral processes and the provisions of the 
um, election laws and regulations. And for us, I think it's more to do with civic education, which is uh, something that we at the election office here in Tuvalu will need to improve on that because we here in Tuvalu, we don't have an election management body. The election will be uh, conducted under the office of the prime minister because election is in the portfolio of the prime minister. So when it comes to election, uh, we who are working in the office of the Prime Minister, we, we do uh, the management and the operation of the election. We leave our day job and uh, engage ourselves in the... But since today, the lack of uh, staff within our office, we didn't have time to go out to the community to run civic education. Save the Children Fiji says there's been no reduction in the level of sexual offending against children in Fiji. It follows the release of December's 2023 Rape and Sexual Offences Statistics from the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Save the Children's Chief Executive, Shairana Ali, told Caleb Fotheringham there's a lack of public outrage in the country when it comes to violence against children. For the December 2023 period, we have received reports of nine individuals facing a total of 44 charges related to sexual offences in December alone, so for that month alone. And of these charges, there were 33 that were recorded as rape, four as indecent assault and three as sexual assault. What is more concerning is the fact that of the 10 victims that were identified, five were actually under the age of 18, so they were minors, they were children. And there were two males and eight females who were out of the, the, the 10 eh, who were affected. So we keep seeing that the statistics from month to month concern uh, children who are being sexually abused and exploited. And, uh, you know, we don't see any sort of improvement in the statistics concerning children eh, and the rates of uh, sexual offences against children in general. So that is a huge concern for Save the Children. You said that you want to see heavier penalties for those who commit these sexual offences. Do you think that will reduce the number of these type of offences taking place? Well, that is one of the approaches that we see that may act as a deterrent. And at the moment, we are seeing, you know, perpetrators getting off with nine-year sentencing, uh, ten-year, even seven to eight-year sentencing, and then they are out again in the communities. What we are calling for is really more harsher penalties for perpetrators and even going to the extent of saying life sentencing because this is very serious. And I think, you know, the justice system in general needs to look at our laws and policies and ensure that the rights of children are always protected. So we think that harsher penalties will help in terms of acting as a deterrent for potential perpetrators. But of course, you know, um, we are also encouraging all the communities, everybody really in the community setting, to look out for children, to report, and also to prevent sexual violence against children. In your release, you said that sexual violence against children is becoming the norm. Are you happy to just elaborate on what you meant by that? What we mean by that is we don't see a lot of 
public outrage or, you know, outrage from various partners involved in this work and including the government. So the statistics are released every month and uh, it's it almost seems like it's the news of the day and then people move on with their daily routine and forget about it. But this is not something that should be accepted. These statistics involve children. It affects their entire life um, if they are you know, subjected to any form of violence, uh, including sexual abuse. We feel very strongly that if we continue to be complacent as duty bearers, very soon nobody is going to react and action to address these issues will not necessarily eventuate. So for us, you know, we, we feel that, that it concerns all of us in Fiji and it concerns our children, their future. And it should be, you know, treated as such that, you know, we need to all advocate. We all need to stand up for children's rights and protect them. A United States commentator on Pacific issues wants to see greater oversight over U.S. federal programs in the region. Georgetown University School of Foreign Service affiliate Michael Walsh says there are cases of fraud, waste, abuse and mismanagement involving federally funded programs across the U.S. Pacific homeland. Mr. Walsh spoke with Don Wiseman, who began by asking about the level of corruption surrounding the federal funding. When we talk about fraud, waste, abuse and mismanagement, it can involve different types of funds. It can involve federal funds. It could involve state and local government funds. It could involve foreign developmental assistance funds and and other foreign government funding coming into the region. When we're talking about the state of Hawaii and we're talking about the U.S. Pacific territories, a lot of the funding, fraud, waste, abuse, mismanagement that we know about comes out of federal investigations. So those are run by attorney generals and by OIGs and others. And so what we've seen over the last couple of years is we've seen some some fairly aggressive prosecutions that have gone out and done some really in-depth case work, and they've identified a number of serious issues of corruption in the state of Hawaii and and in the territories. And they've involved things including Chinese casinos. They've involved money being handed off to the majority leader of the state of Hawaii Senate. They've involved defense contractors. So we've seen quite a few incidents of fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement involving federal funds, and we've seen prosecutions. But I think the sense is it's it's kind of only the tip of the iceberg because of the tyranny of distance and the fact that there isn't as much oversight exercised in the region as would be exercised if it was closer to the capital. You see as a solution the setting up of an inspector general for the Pacific. How would this work? Yeah, so I mean, right now, each department in the U.S. government, each each agency department has its own office of the inspector general. And one of the challenges that we have is that they're based in Washington, D.C., and it takes a long time and it takes a lot of effort to get out to the Pacific. And so when we have discussions about oversight, one of the discussions that constantly comes up, and it came up during the Compacts of Free Association negotiations as well, is how ex- expensive it is to be able to do oversight because of the distance involved and how it takes away from being able to exercise oversight elsewhere. 
So I don't know what the ratio would be, but for each investigation they do in the Pacific, it takes away more than one investigation elsewhere in the continental United States and and Alaska. And so that trade-off, the fact that it's more expensive to do oversight is a barrier. And it's a barrier that people talk about quite widely. And so one solution, the solution I was proposing was that we could have a unified Office of the Inspector General for the Pacific that would be responsible for any allegation of fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement involving any federal agency funds. So it could investigate, say, the Department of Defense allegations. It it could investigate the Department of Energy's allegations, Department of Health and Human Services, whatever it may be. But you'd have one group of investigators, and they could be supported by the other OIGs when it came to technical or, you know, very specific legalistic interpretations that needed to be done back in Washington. But the day-to-day work could be done in the region. And so you could set it up, whether it be in Guam or whether it be in Hawaii or wherever it would be, uh, you'd set it up in the region so that tyranny of distance will be removed, and then we could increase the amount of oversight that's being exercised. One of the key reasons for this renewed interest by the U.S. is because of China's growing interest in the Pacific. And you have the situation, at least in some places, I think, where small countries are able to play the big powers off against each other. So this far greater scrutiny of how is that going to play, do you think, under those circumstances? The problem is, is that any of these opportunities for systemic fraud, waste, abuse and mismanagement or just opportunistic versions of it, you know, they provide opportunities, they're they're vulnerabilities that a country like the People's Republic of China can exploit. And they're seeking to exploit these things. You know, that's one of their goals. That's how they advance their own national security and foreign policy interests. And there's also non-governmental actors, you know, the casino operators and others who maybe are not always necessarily working on behalf of the government. They're just working to advance their own interests. And they see bribery and corruption as a way of doing that. And so I think that the, the reality is, is that if we allow these vulnerabilities to exist, we should expect that they're going to be exploited. And they're going to be exploited not just by domestic actors seeking to make some profit, but they're also going to be exploited by strategic competitors including major power competitors. And, you know, China is one of those. But you could imagine in this world of global competition that there'd be others as well. And I think that that's the problem. And so I think when we look at a a world in which political warfare is being waged across the Pacific by malicious actors who are, you know, major power competitors of the United States, it behooves the United States to try to eliminate as many vulnerabilities as possible. And where you can't eliminate them, at least mitigate them. In this case, oversight is a form of mitigation. And so I always say that when you look at this issue, this isn't the issue that can be defeated with a constellation of U.S. military bases and intelligence sites because it's not a military posture problem or a security defense posture problem. It's a democracy problem. And so to fix that sort of problem, you you have to have good governance, you have to have institutional safeguards, and you have to have political pluralism. And that requires, you know, really investing in your democracy and making sure that it's not open for exploitation. It's going to be a very long process to achieve all of that, isn't it? Yeah, it's not going to be easy, but I don't think it's an optional task. When you look across the United States Pacific homeland, we see people who are becoming disillusioned by their experiences, their their day-to-day experiences, dealing with not having basic government services delivered that meet their expectations. 
And whenever you have that sort of situation arise, you know, whether it's the power outages in Guam or it's the monorail not being delivered on time and on budget in Honolulu, or it's the Red Hill, the fuel leaks that happened, which have drawn international attention. Whatever the issue may be, it leads to a situation where people aren't just dissatisfied with what's being provided to them. In the world we're living in today, especially in a world of of democracy, authoritarian competition, it leads some people to question whether or not democracy really works well. And that's not the type of world we want. I mean, it's very clear the Biden administration has, has been very vocal about the fact that we're in a competition of values. And one of those values is democracy. And so if we're going to win that competition, we need to make sure that democracy works well for everyone. And that means that basic government services are performed well for everyone. A digital marketplace in New Zealand is helping parents and caregivers find flexible work opportunities across the country. Since July 2022, the job site Jobs for Mums has been on a mission to drive positive change for both families and companies. The founders of the site say 80% of the gender pay gap is attributed to motherhood penalty. Joining me to talk more about Jobs for Mums is co-founder Semwana Naisali. Talofalava Semwana, tell me more about this job site. Jobs for Mums is a social enterprise. Uh, we advertise flexible, family-friendly employment opportunities for parents and caregivers across Aotearoa. Um, we're fairly new, only a year and a half old, but currently we have over 13,000 registered candidates nationwide. Um, we're called Jobs for Mums because that's where we saw the greatest need, but we're open to anyone looking for flexible work. So we've helped um, dads, caregivers, students, retirees, kind of anyone looking for, for flexible work. And how did the idea to establish this job site come about? Um, so it was founded by um, our founding director, Mela Lush, who was a stay-home mum at the time looking for flexible work. And um, so she started the, the business. And um, myself and Eva DuPont, my fellow co-founder, we joined um, quite quite fairly new in um, and we were all looking for flexible work. So we were all, we were all stay-home mums at the time. So on top of being the co-founder for Jobs for Mums, I understand you're also studying towards your PhD, uncovering the hidden blocks to Pacifica women's careers and ultimately financial stability. Tell me more about that. Sure, sure. So um, my research is exactly that. So it is... Um, Looking at the hidden barriers, like you said, um, it looks at flexible and remote work and how it can create equitable outcomes for for Pacifica women. Um, We know that Pacifica women are the the lowest paid ethnic group in New Zealand, so we earn 25% less than Nevapalangi, Pakeha, Caucasian males. Um, To put that into perspective, um, Caucasian males earn $33 and Pacifica women earn $24.75. Um, and that's of September last year. So um, it's quite significant at this point. It's not really, you know, the difference between a cup of coffee anymore. Um, it's more, um, a lot more significant than that. It's about being able to send your kids to daycare or not, um, being able to pay your bills or not. And so, yeah, it's, it's about understanding those hidden barriers as to why we're the lowest paid ethnic group in New Zealand um, and how we can support Pacifica women um, into you know progressing to close that gender pay gap. 
And while we're on the topic of hidden barriers, I mean, there are efforts to raise awareness around motherhood penalty, and the stats from the Ministry for Women are disheartening. But even the term itself, um, motherhood penalty, don't you think it kind of discourages women from becoming a mum? I mean, um, I think it's more like a systemic uh, issue as opposed to, you know, a personal issue of, you know, not being able to be a mum because because of that. Um, so we do know that the motherhood penalty, for example, it makes up 80% of the gender pay gap. So just by supporting mothers and caregivers would be solving, you know, 80% of that overall gap. Um, and it's things like childcare are one of the biggest barriers to employment, um, which is, of course, exacerbated if you're a specific woman. Um, and really, you know, the, the the nuclear family is kind of a really age-old concept. It's an archaic concept, which we now see today um, is, is just not the case. Um, you know, the 40-hour work week is just not working. Um, there are so many different family structures now. We see the modern family. We see um, blended families. We've got communal living arrangements now with the high cost of living. And so if employers are able to acknowledge that and support um, support more flexible working arrangements, it would make a huge impact on not only Pacifica women, but on you know the New Zealand economy as a whole. And why do you think workplaces on a global scale are taking so long to address the gender pay gap and motherhood penalty? Surely it doesn't cost much to improve workplace culture, right? Well, you'd be surprised, you know, like uh, with COVID, if that was you know anything to go by, it's shown us that many of the roles that we were doing in person can actually be done remotely. Um, it's not a one-shoe-fits-all. Um, obviously, you know, some roles you have to be there in person. But I think it comes with, like I said, um, just that archaic sort of thinking of that's how we've always done things. It's been the status quo for so, so many years. And um, that's what I'm hoping to kind of achieve with my research is to find quantifiable data and that comes with the qualitative data first of understanding people, talking to our community, understanding Pacific women and how they, um, you know, what those hidden barriers are. Um, you know, some things can't be uh, difficult to kind of prove, things like racism and discrimination and bias and things like that. Um, but I think it starts with the conversation. So. And since its operation, how many mums have come through the job site so far, as well as organisations? Yes, yeah, so currently we have uh, 13, just over 13,000 registered candidates, and that's only um, in a year, one, one and a half years of, of operation. So for the most part, we've grown organically. Um, we're lucky enough to have, you know, we have partners now. We've partnered with the Ministry of Social Development, um, we have a principal partnership with Fletcher Building, which has been amazing, and just trying to support women into those underrepresented, high-paying sectors um, that will um, hopefully contribute to closing that gender pay gap, um, helping unemployed mothers, solo parents, um, job seekers into employment. Um, so currently, yes, over 13,000 um, nationwide. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasui Fua.